Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. The vision that we really have is that in the future, there will be recyclable products, there'll be compostable products, there'll be dispatchable products. And with dispatchable products, in the same way that you set your products out for recycling or compost, um, you can set your products out for reuse and that there's a dispatch goods logo on those products so you can differentiate. And building out those reuse processing centers and that infrastructure, uh, you know, it's going to take three to five years for sure. Once you create at least a semi-national infrastructure, that's when almost every brand can tap in. Hey everyone. Ever get carry out food and then feel guilty about all the plastic packaging? Single-use plastics are a real problem. Every year, over 14 million tons of plastic end up in our oceans, and plastic that ends up in landfills release toxins that pollute our soil, waterways, and food chain. This is not to mention the carbon emissions of producing plastic packaging to begin with. The convenience of carry-out food isn't going anywhere, and so we need to find alternatives to plastic packaging. That's where Dispatch Goods comes in. They're an innovative startup that's already replaced over 1 million pieces of plastic packaging with reusable containers. In this episode, I spoke with Dispatch Goods CEO, Lindsay Hole, and Christina O'Connor, a partner at Congruent Ventures who led a seed investment in Dispatch. We talked about Dispatch's history and progress, the challenges of scaling circular economy businesses, and what our future might look like as companies like Dispatch grow and enable us all to return packaging and materials for future use. Hope you learn as much as I did. Enjoy. Lindsay and Christina, welcome to Invested in Climate. So glad to have you both here today. Thanks for having us. This is really exciting. Good to be here. Thanks. Are you both in the Bay Area today? Where do I find you? Yes, I'm in the fog in the outer sunset in San Francisco right now. And I'm in our office in downtown San Francisco. All right, great. Well, I'm in the sunny East Bay. Love to do this in person sometime, but let's dive in. So much to talk about today. Lindsay, let's start with you. You are the founder and CEO of Dispatch Goods. Tell us about Dispatch and the problem you're working to solve. Sure. So Dispatch Goods essentially is on a mission to make reusability easy for businesses. And our big problem is waste. I lived in Hawaii for a few years and became kind of obsessed with the problem of waste because it was incredibly apparent on a lot of beaches, the microplastics problem. And so I started to volunteer with Surfrider Foundation and launched a program called Ocean Friendly Restaurants, where we helped like businesses transition to more sustainable practices and felt like we were transitioning them from bad waste to slightly mm. better waste. And I wanted to understand like, why do we have waste period? Why can't we just switch to reuse models? 
And the answer was, it's really difficult for businesses to do this internally. They need an infrastructure to tap into because there's a lot of like collection, sorting, cleaning, processing, logistics that go into reuse. And so I really set out to build a recycling-esque infrastructure for reuse. So moved back to the Bay Area and met my co-founder, Maya, who was at Caviar and then DoorDash after the acquisition. And we teamed up and launched Dispatch Goods. And we work with businesses to help them get their packaging back um, in order to like create circular systems. So we work a lot with primarily in the food space so that we can give packaging a second, third, fourth life. Great. Break this down a bit for us just so we can better understand it. Tell us about who are some of your partners or, or how does it really work? Yeah. So we started off with restaurants. Restaurant food is being delivered throughout the Bay Area packaging has a QR code on it that customers scan, they schedule collection, and they put their packaging out on collection day. Uh, Collection day is just like recycling day, where uh, you don't get to say what day it is. We just come to every neighborhood once a week, and we collect dispatchable goods. And then we process them, and then businesses just reorder packaging back. So started with restaurants. It's really expanded beyond that now to a lot of other meal and grocery delivery businesses. Um, and we've just now crossed the million item mark. We've processed and returned 1.2 million items back to businesses now, um, really avoiding the, like those items would have been otherwise wa- like waste stream bound. So it's pretty exciting. Amazing. Congratulations on that milestone. Thanks. Give us a sense of the scale of the problem. So you've been around and you're only focused on the Bay Area, but you've still already saved over a million or 1.2 million items from going to landfill. Yeah. How much do we waste overall? Uh, it's a lot. So we produce almost a trillion single-use items every year, um, single-use packaging items. And in the U.S. alone, it's like $365 billion. So it's an enormous scale. And I think we think a lot about the end-of-life considerations. The microplastics is, is what I think got my attention and it gets a lot of people's attention. What's been really exciting is to understand the carbon case for reuse because When we started again, like we thought a lot about end of life, but as we learned more, there's a lot of products that are going out into the world, like a glass jar, for example, that are used again as single use, but don't need to be. Those products are fully reusable in their current form factor. And the carbon that it takes to process something for reuse, so essentially clean it versus the process to either recycle it or make it from new Uh, there's so much less carbon into just reusing the product versus making it new. So if the U.S. switched to a reuse model, it would be like the carbon equivalent of removing 27% of all U.S. cars off the road. So uh, there's a really exciting opportunity both on the waste side, but as well as just like like the curbing climate change uh, component of, of reuse being just a really logical lever for us to pull in this. And tell us about recycling because of a lot of the plastics that are part of oh the food delivery ecosystem have the little recycling label on them. And I've spent my fair share of time scrubbing out little salsa containers. Does that help? So about 9% of plastics are recycled, but generally plastics can only be downcycled, meaning they can't be built back into their current like material format. So even if they can be recycled, it's a couple to a few times best case scenario. And you are one of the amazing humans who's scrubbing out your plastics. Most people don't go through that extra effort. And if there's any food in the packaging, then they won't be recycled because it's considered like stream contamination. 
And so the recycling companies are not cleaning out your plastics for you and then recycling. They're only taking really pristine plastics that have a single material type in, in recycling them. And then the other side of that is that you need a secondary market for then like that, that will repurchase those plastics and recycled plastics are more expensive than virgin plastics. So even if they're hypothetically recyclable, if there's not a buyer or a market, they still end up in the same place. So the overall system is broken holistically. And while we think improvements in recycling will be part of the solution, compostables and composting is going to be part of the solution. And then we just need to stop making single-use products or stop thinking everything, like having the perspective that everything needs to be a single-use item because it just doesn't, doesn't need to be that way. Well, I think the example that you provided provides a really good illustration of the difference between recycling and a circular economy where we're not downgrading and we can keep materials in the system. Let's go back to your journey a little bit more. You said that you started based upon the inspiration of seeing plastics washed ashore in Hawaii. The last time you and I spoke, I got to see the background. You were in your processing facility where there was all sorts of equipment, all sorts of things. And you mentioned that you really got started by doing this by hand yourself. And now you've grown quite a bit. So tell us a little bit about that journey from how you initially developed the traction and where you're at today. Yeah. So there wasn't a, this, there wasn't a blueprint for us when we went out to start a kind of reuse infrastructure. And so, so much of it we had to learn and perfect and test for over time. So my co-founder and I started with the downtown lunch crowd and we would put return bins at offices and then re- participating restaurants and the employees nearby, they could get the food and reusables and, and put them in into those return bins. And then we were in a shared kitchen, like a shared commercial kitchen where we were doing the processing ourselves. We had this like red wagon that we would fill up with bags of reusables. And so what was really incredible is just us learning and troubleshooting and then doing, you know, like lab validation testing that our processes worked. I'm a food safety manager now. So like understanding the health department requirements and then learning, okay, like now we need to have our own facility and there's components that are really manual that we need to figure out how to automate. And there's packaging that there's a lot of packaging that works. There's some packaging that doesn't work for reuse right now. And so in January of last year, we opened up our own facility on the, on the West coast. And it's been really incredible. We actually launched on the East coast uh, this year as well. A couple of our really large partners essentially asked us if we could expand with them after we had successful West coast launches And so now we've launched on the East Coast. Um, And so I was there most of the summer setting that up. And I came back to San Francisco and was only away for a few months and walked into our processing center in San Francisco. And it was just wall to wall packaging, like uh, such a stark difference to where we were two years ago when we started. So it was a really incredible moment to just see the vast amount of what I would say is would be waste. Like most of this would be landfill bound if dispatch goods didn't exist. And that it's just still, we're just getting started. And you multiply that effect to, to many different products in many different markets. And to see with our own eyes, kind of like how that shift can happen and what that can look like was really just an exciting moment. It's funny, even the word packaging, and I can't help but get in my head, disposable material. But I've been on your website, so I know that you're working with glass, and I believe it's aluminum tins. Is that right? So give us a sense of what what the actual materials are. Yeah, steel. Like Basically, we can process things that are steel, aluminum in some cases, not all aluminum, plastics that are made of polypropylene or polyethylene. 
those are the microwave safe and high temp dishwasher safe. We work with glass and then, um, then there's some other like inbox packaging materials we work with so, so that you can think about things like gel packs and insulation. Again, like we have really used a lot of the end consumer, I guess their ideas to help fuel which products are low hanging fruit to have consumers send back to us because people recognize things as reusable. Like people recognize mason jars, like there's like a whole like culture around mason jar hoarding, which, you know, is really a single use product, but people recognize this as reusable. And there's a whole suite of products where consumers feel bad throwing them away because it feels durable enough to be reused. But, you know, there's only so many mason jars that you need to hold on to. And so that's really helped guide us in what products can be reused. And then we do the testing and ensure that they maintain whatever performance they needed to serve, you know, kind of in the second, third, fourth life that they can maintain that performance. Well, cheers. I'm drinking from a mason jar as well right now. I didn't realize I was part of a cult by doing so. (laughs) Congratulations on that growth and opening the East Coast facility. And I imagine that this growth uh, is, of course, partially made possible by your seed investors, including Christina and Congruent Ventures. So let's turn to you, Christina. Tell us a bit about Congruent. What's the investment thesis guiding your firm? And why did you choose to invest in dispatch goods? Great. Thanks, Jason. It's good to be here. So Congruent Ventures is a climate tech-focused VC. So we invest at the earliest stage possible. So pre-seed and seed is really our our sweet spot. And we invest across every sector that relates to climate change and mitigating climate change and also environmental sustainability. So that includes, of course, energy transition and then mobility and urbanization, food and agriculture, and sustainable production and consumption. And we do both hardware and software, so we're not afraid of companies that will actually require a lot of hardware. And we typically lead the deals. So we sit on the boards. Um, so I sit on the board of Dispatch Goods. So for Dispatch, we actually had already made investment in the quote unquote trash space called Amp Robotics, which is uh, working on the problem from uh, a different angle. So once the trash is going towards landfill, they actually are able to use a robotic AI sortation system to reduce the amount of waste that actually goes to landfill. But of course, that's never going to solve all of our problems. We, we definitely need uh, this reuse system to prevent the trash from even becoming trash in the first place. And so we had actually spoken to a number of circular packaging companies before, and we hadn't quite found one where we loved the founders and we thought that they had a really good grasp on unit economics. Those two core things were the most important things for us. And so when we met Lindsay, it was very, very early on. Uh, we actually ended up tracking her progress for a few months and then ended up leading the round um, after that. And, and I think the, you know, the industry, is, as Lindsay said, hasn't been created yet, right? So it's literally creating something from scratch, which is typically the areas like where we invest. We invest when it's just an idea on paper. And so for us, we actually really bought into Lindsay's vision. She was extremely focused on the KPIs and, you know, had all these spreadsheets showing us how the margins would improve over time if she tweaked this and changed that and et cetera. And so we spent a lot of time on the unit economics, which was uh, you know, very convincing to us. Great. And I've seen that some of your investments include AI or robotics as the intended technology game changer. Is that kind of high tech relevant to a company like Dispatch, where it's ultimately about cleaning stuff? So 
I don't want to give away Lindsay's long-term plans, but uh, <laughs> it does actually involve that. A little bit of AI, a little bit of robotics, and it's definitely also a software platform. So there's just so many ways to optimize the existing infrastructure. So it's not just about washing dishes or gel packs or et cetera. Um, it's really about that long-term vision. And so, yes, a lot of our companies, not all of them, do actually involve a fair amount of, of AI. Great. So let's talk about Dispatch's growth potential. A lot of circular economy businesses have, have trouble with scale because you're dealing with keeping materials in circulation and those materials have to be collected and processed and transported. So I'd love to hear from both of you on this issue, uh, but let's start with you, Lindsay. How is your model scalable and what will it take for you to scale Dispatch? I love that Christina mentioned that I am obsessed with unit economics because I think that is immediately the concern in the circular economy space is how do the economics work? And so for us, we really came to this with an obsession with waste and a missing infrastructure. And we looked for the products that make economic sense to build it. So we use San Francisco as our R&D center where we will test so many different types of products to see if they work. And when we find products that have a high volume and high margin potential, those are the products that we will scale. And we look for the type of businesses that are using a lot of those products so that we have kind of like insta volume in our next market. And that's exactly what happened on the East Coast. So we launched really the warehouse in June, but we started operating out of a shared space earlier. And our target is kind of break even within eight months. And we're right on target for that. So the pathway for profitability in a new market is now not just like modeled out, but been tested. Um, and so that's really exciting for us. I agree that the scale is kind of the piece that we got a lot of questions about in the early days, but we make sure a product works um, from an economic standpoint in order to scale it. And we do, we look for products that have a pretty high recent, like if you're going to buy it new, that, that there's a, uh, you know, like a, a case where we can support the logistics and processing of that and sell it back to the business at a price that's the same or slightly cheaper than they would buy it new so that there's a strong economic case for the business. The consumer stoked because now the waste is kind of whisked away and, and no longer their problem. And we still target like, you know, having strong margins on those products. And so, yeah, I think that our recipe has been we test in San Francisco with different customer segments so like business where B2B and different business customer segments, different products within those customer segments. And then we scale the pieces that work. Um, and luckily, there's like so much packaging and so much opportunity that we can be selective. I think a lot of the big winners in the last 10 to 20 years have been obvious products in need of an infrastructure like an EV that needed a, you know, a charging infrastructure or, you know, everything store that needed a forward logistics solution to get things to people quickly. Um, and we're no different. We had a, like a pretty obvious product, which is reusing packaging. It's building that infrastructure and doing it in a way that's economical. And so we don't go after right now, like the really cheap products because the economics aren't as strong. Now, after you've built this infrastructure, you can add more products at a low marginal cost because we already have the infrastructure built. But first, we got to build this infrastructure. So you pick the products that help you do that. And those are the products that you could like, basically save money businesses by buying those like reused versus new. 
Give us a sense because I, I would bet that we use all of those, both the more expensive and the, the, the cheaper packaging materials. What are they? Styrofoam containers cost like six cents. Like right now, if we don't see this a lot in the Bay Area, but this is still in other communities. You know, if a business is using a styrofoam container and paying six cents, that's going to be a hard product for us to replace until there's some kind of policy. So we're not going after those businesses. We're not going after that customer segment like really thin plastic bags. Those are another really cheap product. Now, if you get to a delivery company that's shipping frozen fish, that fish is really valuable. And so they're putting expensive insulation in there and a lot of cold packaging. And so there, there's a lot of value in the packaging because there was a lot of value in the product and they don't want that product to be contaminated. That's a really good opportunity for us to get that packaging back and sell it back to the business at a discount because Now they can spend less on the exact same packaging. That's kind of like the packaging that we target to start versus like the really, really cheap plastics where those are a little bit harder. That makes sense. So build the infrastructure to be able to process everything. Start with the things where there's going to be more demand based upon the the difference in cost and then work your way down that cost curve. So to grow dispatch, it sounds like you'll need a wide geographic footprint of processing facilities near all the major markets that you're serving, along perhaps with a fleet of vehicles to transport the reusable packaging that you're processing. And to me, this paints a picture of a future where dense urban environments are surrounded by a layer of reprocessing facilities. And this is a vision that I've heard from others working in the circular economy, that just as today, there's a lot of infrastructure around cities that's essentially there to focus on getting rid of stuff, materials, trash, water, And that in the future, there'll be an infrastructure layer designed to keep that stuff in circulation. Is that the vision of the future that you have as well? And as you think about the countless operational details of expansion, what are some of the key principles or strategies that'll allow you to grow while minimizing your costs, your operational complexity, and your own carbon emissions? That is the vision that we share of the future. And there's a lot of excitement about thinking about a regional supply chain um, as well. So on top of the clear environmental benefits of having like a shortened supply chain, businesses are having like a lot of issues and unpredictability regarding sourcing right now. And so having a large portion of their supplies come from a local processing center is really appealing for businesses. So I think that there's a win-win there. As far as kind of like how we think about where these processing centers need to be, We have a lot of partners that have a very similar distribution footprint, that they're in six or seven areas that service a larger geographic area. So our strategy is really to set up our warehousing and processing centers close to those businesses because that's who we're catering to. And so the roadmap for like the first six to seven markets is really clear for us. And then we've built out kind of the roadmap to hit about the ability to serve about 70% of the U.S., And that's with processing centers that can, like, we believe that one, or like what we've learned is that one processing center pretty easily can service an area that's within six hours of driving. And what you need to do is just obviously be driving full trucks and you you don't want to drive partial trucks. And, And that obviously helps by having like high volume in new markets that you're launching. So to launch, we just kind of set up shop near the partners that we have on the West Coast that are also on the East Coast. Um, And we can kind of do that in the other markets that they're in. And then from an emission standpoint, 
from the, the, the driving logistics. We offset all of our miles, which is not what I consider to be like the answer, but it's what we can do right now. And then over time, it's really, you know, like we want to shift to like our trucks being an EV fleet versus gas powered. And then we also just like, you really want to maximize the truck load so that you're not running like half empty trucks. So that goes hand in hand with making the economics better. So luckily where, what we have found in this reuse world or most of the time, the benefits of improved economics also improve the carbon per unit. Um, And still, even if we're driving six hours, that's usually a much shorter supply chain than where the products would be coming from if they were new and because everything is regionalized. So, yeah. It's fascinating to think about not just the vision of the future with this extra layer of reprocessing around cities, but also all of this movement, right? As um, Oh, 10 years ago, we couldn't imagine how many Amazon delivery trucks would be around bringing things to us but you're painting a picture of also trucks moving around to take things back from us, which will enable not just the uh, the processing and cleaning of food delivery packaging, but all sorts of reverse logistics of items that can be part of a circular economy if they get back to those that need them. That's exactly right. My husband and I are both surfers and like another item is like surfboard packaging. There's so much packaging that, that comes in that and I can't wait until we can add bike packaging, surfboard packaging to our logistics flow so that we can now get those back to the sur- the local surfboard shapers. Because again, like there's just no point in, in having that product used once and, and building out that infrastructure so that everything come, that comes to your house now can um, be put out for recollection and repurposing, which is just awesome. That's very cool. Christina, let's turn to you now. I'm curious about your own view as an investor about the scalability challenges of circular businesses or other businesses that are really doing things that um, relate to moving and processing stuff? Sure. So I think it's it's about how you scale. A lot of companies in this space tend to get tempted to expand too quickly because a lot of their customers are actual uh, national brands. And so if you expand too quickly, then sometimes you go under. And so for us, it's really about what is the right time to enter a new market. And that's a lot of what we grilled Lindsay on when we were first doing our due diligence is, you know, how do you actually decide when to expand into a new city, into a new region? Because you don't want to expand too early, of course. And so for us, it's definitely feasible for the entire nation to, to create the circular economy, but it's, um, you know, at what pace will we scale this? And so what do you look for from entrepreneurs, especially early on, both in terms of their business case, but also the way that they're thinking in terms of ability to predict their their scalability? Of course, it's a lot about the team. So we look at their backgrounds, their experience. Uh, Dispatch Goods has an amazing team that actually has very relevant uh, backgrounds in reverse logistics, for example. So we look at that. And then, as I mentioned, like, of course, unit economics, but also the strategy behind the new market entry and really understanding if they, you know, have that roadmap to enter new regions and to understand their thought process behind that. And a lot of it is actually their ability to to network because dispatch goods, their space is basically you know, involves a lot of stakeholders and a lot of networking to get everything set up. So we look for all of that. Great. I think it's a good moment to hear about some of your other investments. I saw that you're also an investor in Planet Forward. Tell us about that one and um, would love to hear about other investments that you're excited to share as well. 
We led the co-led the Series A for Planet Forward alongside Acre Ventures. Planet Forward is a carbon accounting company for the food and beverage industry primarily. They're also now in fashion and beauty. So they actually have the largest LCA database for ingredients. So they can actually trace the ingredients of food products down to the farm level and understand whether or not regenerative farm practices were used for those specific ingredients. Think of a box of crackers. Uh, one day, all of our boxes of crackers will actually have a carbon footprint label, kind of like a nutrition label. Europe has been leading the way in this space, but the U.S. is, is starting to get into it as well. So Planet Forward has a software platform where they make it much more efficient to input all of your ingredients. Um, they trace suppliers, and they can really understand the actual real scope three footprint. So for us, we had looked at a lot of companies in the scope one and two emissions categories, but really wanted to focus on the scope three, which entails supply chain and actually makes up about, I think it's 70 to 80% of the emissions of most companies. And so if we want to tackle climate change, we need to (laughs) figure out a way for um, understanding our scope three emissions. And so that's what Planet Forward focuses on. I read it's actually almost 90%. It's 89% of emissions from consumer products are scope three. Yes, this the company's ability to use technology to help brands understand their scope three emissions and limit them can be really impactful. Let's hear about some other companies that you've been investing in and that you're excited about. Sure. So we have invested in uh, a number of companies that span the nexus between deep tech and climate tech. So as I mentioned, a lot of robotics and AI companies, we have a company called Parallel Systems, which is a group of folks from SpaceX that are trying to electrify the railroad system. So they've created these uh, robotic systems to move containers. And you know they went from just an idea on paper to full-scale prototypes in a year and a half. That's one in the sort of mobility and also electrification side of things. We also have uh, another company called uh, Lydian Labs, which is in, it's basically an electrochemical process, electrothermal process for converting CO2 into syngas, which can be used for sustainable jet fuel. We have another company called Kodama, which is a robotic forest thinning company. So uh, mega wildfires are a huge problem, as you know, and that's due to a number of different reasons, of course, climate change being one, but another reason is just that our forests have been mismanaged and, and need to be thinned. And so they've created a a system where you can actually make the equipment autonomous and make the whole process much more efficient. I apologize for putting you on the spot. I know it's like picking your children. How do you choose (laughs) which ones? Uh, But thanks for sharing that. I did catch that. It's interesting between Dispatch Goods and Planet Forward, you're investing in companies that are really trying to rewire how other companies interact with products that we use on a daily basis. And you know, some investors are, are fully focused on energy production and usage and the grid, electrons, really. But tell us about how you view the investment opportunity for focusing on consumer products-related companies. We focus it on two ends. So one on the actual use of those products, so that would fall into to Lindsay's uh, category. But then we do, I would say, more investments actually on how you make consumer products more sustainably. So we actually have a number of companies in the manufacturing processes and supply chain. So, for example, we have a robotic forklift company. The grand vision is to have 
dark warehouses one day. So if you don't have to light warehouses or, or heat them, then you can save an enormous amount of energy. And so uh, a lot of companies focused on that. And then also just in supply chain logistics. So we have a route optimization <laughs> company, which is also very relevant for reverse logistics for what Lindsay's doing. And then like on the consumer brand side of things, look for innovative technology that will basically reinvigorate an entire um, platform. So for example, 4Days is one of our companies in the circular clothing uh, space. So you buy their clothing and then you return it to them and they recreate it to another sweatshirt or another pair of pants. Fantastic. A final question for you both, given how immersed you are in climate tech and the circular economy. I'm curious, what do you see as some unsolved problems or untapped opportunities that you think need more attention? It might be things that are related to your company or the companies you're involved in or just problems that keep you up at night and that you wish that others were tackling or just opportunities that you see on the horizon. One opportunity we see is, you know, there's kind of durables and then there's compostables um, and there's trade-offs for both. And one place that we're starting to see some companies approach a durable compostable so that something can be used, like to some degree, sometimes we're overgunning our materials. So if a steel container is only going to be used 40 times, but it could be used 2000 times, so a lot of waste of energy and materials that go into creating a product that in the functional environment is only being used 40 times. So really, to some degree, we should be designing products for their actual number of uses. And so it could be a win-win if there was a reusable product that then was able to be composted after 50 or 100 uses um, versus some things that just so many of the durables live forever. And while that's kind of good, it's also kind of bad because there's a lot more materiality that goes into creating those products. So I talked to a European uh, company as we were trying to get a lay of the land for whether this was like a material that we could entertain as we look for kind of new products that need to come to market. And it seems like that there is at least one or two companies looking at doing it, uh, starting in the cosmetic space where um, cosmetic packaging is a great example of where this application could happen because, you know, you need to, your makeup expires, you know, six months to a year. I don't know, I probably use it too long, but like (laughs) hypothetically, Um, and then you don't need that packaging to live on forever, but you do need it to have be a multi-use product. And so I think that that's a really exciting opportunity that doesn't get as much attention as it should. Thanks, Lindsay. Yeah, so for us, so in order to electrify everything that we can electrify, we're going to need a lot of minerals that, you know, we haven't quite found these processes to find them more efficiently. And so the mining area is one where I I don't think a lot of money in climate tech has poured into yet, but we're starting to see a number of promising startups in that space. Direct air capture is another space where it's difficult when you look at the unit economics um, and the margins, but we're always excited about that space. We're actually looking at an ocean CDR company at the moment. And then in general, just super interested about the carbon markets. You know, we've been following a lot of companies' attempts to put carbon offsets on chain and, you know, what it, what does that actually mean for the industry as a whole? So there are a few different sort of areas that we have not invested in yet. Christina, unit economics has come up a few times in this conversation, and I'm curious, are they ever not relevant? As in, are you ever open to companies where the unit economics actually just don't make sense yet, but you see some sort of transformative potential 
and are still able to go for the investment? That's a great question. So yes, we've definitely invested in companies where the unit economics don't quite make sense yet, but they always have a roadmap towards making them make sense. And if they don't, then we typically do not invest. When we invest, it really is an idea on paper and you know the margins really never start off very good. Lindsay, a final question for you. You've described a future where we can expect to see dispatch goods trucks zooming around and taking our food materials, our food packaging to and fro. Give us a sense of not just the scale, but also the scope of what else might you be doing in the future. And if we look really three, five years out, where will we see dispatch interacting with our lives? So the the vision that we really have is that In the future, there will be recyclable products, there'll be compostable products, there'll be dispatchable products. And with dispatchable products, in the same way that you set your products out for recycling or compost, um, you can set your products out for reuse and that there's a dispatch goods logo on those products so you can differentiate. And so building out those reuse processing centers and that infrastructure, uh, you know, it's going to take three to five years for sure. But once you create at least a semi-national infrastructure, that's when almost every brand can tap in. And it doesn't need to be limited to food. We talked about surfboards and and bike packaging, but really having kind of this almost reverse Amazon, if you will, that everything that's getting delivered to your door then could be set out to be collected, processed, and resold back to the businesses is the, the vision in the future that we see. And I think that where this like vision as well as this problem has so much momentum is that businesses desperately want this infrastructure to exist and consumers do. So it's not, a we don't have to convince anyone. It's like Christina said, it's making the economics work. That is the the piece that, you know, some other players in the space have run into challenges, but uh, we're, we're really excited about the momentum and just like the eagerness for this to exist in the world. Well, the economics, but I imagine also the user experience design, because it's one thing for the math to work. But if you get a frustrated customer who's trying something new for the first time, you might not get them back. Right. We firmly believe that reuse needs to be the default and not something that consumers have to opt into. And that doesn't mean that we disregard the consumer experience. It means that the business makes the decision to participate in reuse versus each individual consumer. And so we've tried to design a system that it's as easy to have something picked up by dispatch as it is to have your set out your recycling so that there's not a lift for the consumer. And so that the consumers actually are champions to the businesses and, and then the business kind of can de-risk this decision for, you know, like the, the decision is de-risked for the business based on the consumer enthusiasm. Well, the vision of a reverse Amazon is more exciting and in more ways than I can think of. So best of luck to you on that mission. Thanks. Christina, Lindsay, thank you so much. Very excited for the work that both of you are doing and excited to follow your progress along the way. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having us. Super fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.